Howling out of the upper atmosphere, shattering the sound barrier. We are the hellish drop pod of indecency. 665.66 UHMR Camrat Radio. Coming to you live tonight from Marky's favorite, the back room at Bexy's Flack and Jack. You know, Gabo, nothing calms me down more than after a week of hunting forearmed emperors, other than a nice big pair of tig old biddies. <laughs> Speaking of big old explosions, the administrative marshals are enforcing quarantines all across the underhive, clearing streets to investigate a string of firebombings that tore through the midhive rubric districts earlier today. The threshed have claimed responsibility for the attacks, but so far, none of the members have been found. Leave it up to them ice cavers and demo boys. They really know how to ride. Blazing out of the cold <laughs> uncertainty of the Frost Hollow, I am your captain for tonight's Wild Ride Goblin King. Joined by my partner in audio-based criminality, the two-fisted gunslinger of mayhem, Marky. What it is, people. What it is. Never one to be left out of a fight, especially when we're talking all things power claws. It's the polar bear, the frost hollow, his self. Chuckerfly. You want to know the advantage of having power claws? You can crush your own warp stone into warp dust. Like picking your butt? (laughs) Yeah, but jerking (laughs) off fucking sucks. Exactly. It's a little too rough. (laughs) So you gotta have that powder. And our resident rocket scientist who learned all of his skills through the engineering school of trial and error, essentially hitting that guy way the fuck over there, it's Beast. Hello, everyone. We're not gonna, we're we're not preambling tonight? (laughs) We normally Um, preamble about a bunch of random shit. I guess we're not. I had nothing. (laughs) Got nothing. Welcome to episode 90, Horus Heresy. Whoa. What, of what show, Ryan? The Welcome Horus to episode. Heresy. Horus Heresy. That's the Horus. kind of show I want to see. I mean, talking about big old biddies or whatever you were saying. Tig old biddies. Tig old biddies. Tig old biddies. Them heresy <laughs> whores, they what did we? They what dangerous. Did we, what did we just, call it the other uh, day? The, the, the horsey harassy? Her, yeah, the the harassy. <laughs> the horse harassy. The horse harassy. The horse harassy. The harassy, dude. Yes, the harassy. Fuck. Welcome to Under the Hive of Madness, episode 90, Horus Heresy, part 5, The Funeral Pyres of Istavan. As we mentioned in the last episode, the drop site massacre of Istavan 5 took place over just about three and a half hours, all of it in a place called the Urgul Depression. But before we get into the meat of this episode, we wanted to paint a picture of the battlefield itself. Let me, let me guess, it was depressing. It was very depressing, especially towards the end. Is that is that why one of the chapters is so emo? Yes, because now they're depressed it. all the time. I think after they got their cheeks clapped, that's what that's what caused them to be that way. <laughs> wow, <laughs> you guys are being mean already. <laughs> <laughs> the depression is a shallow canyon bordered on the west by an ancient volcano with a cliff face extending from its northern flanks and along the northern edge of the canyon. To the north of these cliffs and overlooking the depression is the Urgul Plateau, while to the south is a steep rise that leads into the Urgul Hills. To the east is a slow rise that moves out of the canyon. The Xenos Fortress that Fulgrim reinforced and Horus chose as the traitor's stronghold was built into the foot of the volcano on the western edge of the depression and extended to the northwestern edge along some of those cliffs. Atop those cliffs is where Fulgrim had placed the traitor Imperial Army forces with their long-range artillery and guns. The depression was approximately 20 miles, uh, 20 kilometers, excuse me, wide north to south and about 50 kilometers wide west to east. 
although how much farther east the canyon continues isn't really clear. The first wave drop site, made up of the Loyalist forces of the Iron Hands, Raven Guard, and Salamanders, plus their attendant Imperial Army forces, was located about 10 kilometers east of the fortress walls. The Imperial Army sat in the middle of the landing zone with the Iron Hands to their west, closest to the fortress, the Raven Guard to the north, and the Salamanders to the south, with a smaller force of Iron Hands landing right behind the Imperial Army to the east, essentially acting as a rear guard and helping Legio Ataris land where they did, which was just essentially like southwest or southeast of them. When the second wave landed, those who revealed themselves to be the traitors, the Iron Warriors landed just east of the first wave site, so behind it, basically bracketing between themselves and the fortress walls, with the word bearers and night lords mixed and landing to the north, with the word bearers and alpha legion mixed landing to the south. Basically, they landed within the edges of the first wave's drop site, but not within the Loyalist Imperial Army's core-held ground. So the Imperial Army held this pretty big territory in the middle because there's a lot more men and women of what will become the Imperial Guard, essentially, at the middle of this battlefield with all of their attendant like artillery and tanks and all that shit. That's all in the middle. These guys landed outside of that, but overlapping because they were supposed to be, in air quotes, reinforcing it. The traders essentially planned it out so that they could very easily move around and surround the entirety of the Loyalist forces in the middle, and then essentially just slowly fight inward, crushing them in an ever-tightening circle. So to paint this in a lighter tone, <laughs> this looks like a, like an infected, bleached asshole. <laughs> I'm like, how are you going to say butthole? You're going to say butthole. Dude, you, all right, look, <laughs> you, if you knew, I want to know what videos you watch, if that's what you, that's, you know, I didn't want to, you know all right, I didn't want to bring up, I, I don't want to look at a certain, like, bro, two, two and, and, girls, and, two girls, one prostate exam. That's the I, shit that I'm you just watch. saying, it's all right, fine. if you knew I was going to say that, you knew what it looked like without I me saying anything. I didn't know you were going to say it until you said to paint you a brighter don't, picture. It looks like, and I'm like, he's going to say booty hole. I don't know in which context, but you knew, you knew though. because it's what you always go to because that's what it fucking looks like. Dude. Look at that thing. Look at that fucking thing, man. I'm it's so uh, angry. It's, uh, you can't tell me that that doesn't look like some kind of prolapsed asshole you on know the outside. It, oh, now I just say prolapse, it all makes sense. No, you know what it actually reminded me of? A sock? It reminded me of blood gulch from Halo. Yeah. It's in, a, it's in, a kill in, box. In shape. It's a kill box square canyon. You know what else is a box? Uh, a butthole it's, it's a how is the butthole a box it's a meat pineapple mark get it right i'm just meat saying dude it looks pineapple. like it, all right so it's like a circle right it's like life life's like a circle right and then it's got these little tendrils it's like the the wagon wheel right or the, so, the, the soggy the, cheerio if the, you will the correct terminology is spokes sure that you're talking about the arrows showing troop movement into the drop zone right yeah yeah yeah, that that would be the spokes of the wagon wheel, right? It it definitely looks like an infected. And in the epicenter is the Dark Angels. That's the Dark Angels, right? No, in the very no. center is the Imperial Army. Oh, so those are the like just the human forces. 
Yep. So in the very, very center of the landing field are all the humans with their tanks and long-range artillery. And right. then They're around really them. It's, it's a little far away, so it's hard to tell. It looked like a Dark Angels insignia. I don't got time for that shit, Chuck. Don't show me. The Dark Angels are not in this battle. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I thought the Dark Angels yep. were like somewhere the fuck else. Yep, they got sent away. But yeah, you can't tell me that doesn't look like what I just said. You can't look at that thing straight in the eye and... It looks exactly. more exactly. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Further, further confirming more, what I just said. It's a, right? It's a meat pineapple. It looks mm. more like just an infected wound than anything else because it's like it's got like the pus in the middle and then the like angry red skin what all did, around it. What did I show you the last time? You were like, "What the fuck?" Are you no, showing? we can't talk about that. <laughs> can't talk about that, Tom. What was that, that is not podcast or? appropriate. It's I know like, what you're talking about, but we can't talk about what that. Is that? Is we that can't. Oh. You can't. Don't bring it up because Ryan's going to edit it out. Is that in here? Is that no. in here? He I sent him, him a picture of it. No, don't bring uh, it up yeah. because we're going to have to edit out of the episode. No. I know what you're talking about. I don't. I'm not going to remind you. I I know what it is. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, I sent you a fucking picture of it. Are you going to read our our quote there? I can totally read the quote about this location. Who is this? What did I fucking say? Logar. The Primark? Yeah. Lord Bears? Sounds all uppity. Um, I feel like he would sound uppity. Like a white, I think more like wizened preacher. Mm. Like old preacher. Oh, oh that's what I say you. Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, God. Just send, send it to him again. Not that bad, just, just no preamble. Just send no, it to him again. Like, I'll to, stop like on talking Monday. to you. I'll stop talking to you. Is it, Don't send it to me it was, again. It was, it was poop noodle, right? Wasn't it? No, that was not it. But that wasn't it? No. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Is it around that? that? That's actually acceptable. Is it around that? That, that one is acceptable. That we can keep oh in the podcast. Oh, my God. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Alone. A legionary is a formidable foe, as far beyond a man as the wolf is beyond the sheep. Together, bound by ties of unshakable loyalty, a legion is a force that can extinguish the stars and shake the very heavens. Lorgar Arulian, Primarch of the Word Bears. Trapped in a desperate situation, the Primarchs, Korax, and Vulcan scrambled to take stock of their situation. The Salamander's Primarch suggesting the Loyalists make a tactical withdrawal to their dropships dig in, and set up a resistance against any further attacks. Korax, however, suggested that they do whatever they could to escape the slaughter, as the battle was surely already lost. Unable to agree, Vulcan Salamander... Um, should we do a last time? <laughs> Maybe? <laughs> last probably. time on the Horus yeah, Horasi. Last time. Uh, just, just to quickly catch you guys up because we covered this in the last episode before we jump into the meat of this episode that, that the, we left everyone on a cliff on hanger. a on a cliffhanger the loyalist forces have been completely surrounded by the traitor forces both the traitor forces who had come out of Horus's fortress to the west of the ergo depression that we just talked about and the forces of the drop site at the the reinforcing second wave traders who had essentially landed behind and around them. And then what, that's exactly what they did. They just slowly started to crunch in on these forces. And they were opening fire at point-blank range. And Raven Guard and Salamanders in the front ranks were taking like two to three bolter shells to the head and chest. And then after their bodies had fallen, the Iron Warriors were like shooting them five or six more times just to make sure. And it wasn't really that they were being overkilly on each person. It was just the amount of bolter fire that was coming into them was doing that. It wasn't like a conscious decision that we're going to shoot you 10 times. It was, you're going to get hit with 10 bullets because 
10,000 people are shooting at your head essentially. Um, and this desperate situation got bad enough that, uh, well, they had come back into their drop zone or at least the front end of their drop zone, just on the other side of the Imperial army. And it, and it essentially stopped as they were moving towards their stuff when the fighting, like this fighting started to happen and the Imperial army essentially started to act in a way to protect them a little bit. But these guys, of course, are also getting cut down as all of that's happening. And as the wounded space Marines are being brought forward into the apothecarian that's inside the edges of the Imperial armies held to ground, the alpha Legion just sort of appears amidst them and starts fucking slaughtering the apothecaries and all of the wounded soldiers. And just everything goes to hell in a handbasket really quickly. And none of the loyalist forces really knew what was going on. So there's this moment where the veil drops, the traitors completely reveal themselves and the worst of the carnage just starts. And in that first like two to four minutes, so many die and no one knows what's happening. And this is where we kind of come back in. And trapped in that desperate situation, the Primarchs, Korax, and Vulcan scrambled to take stock of their new situation. The Salamander's Primarch suggesting that the Loyalists take a tactical withdrawal to their dropships, dig in, and set up a stern resistance against any further attacks. The hopes being we can get back into our dropships and we can escape back into orbit in mass, but let's withdraw as an entire unit. Korax, however, suggested that they do whatever they could to escape the slaughter, essentially just get the fuck out of the Urgul depression because the battle was lost. If we leave, we can get out on the plains, we can get in the wasteland, we can regroup and we can figure out what we're going to do, or we can run to the other side of the fucking planet and get picked up. But staying here is a bad idea. So you've got one brother that wants to reinforce the Imperial army and dig in, and you've got another brother who's like, no, all of us need to run. Unable to agree, Vulcan Salamander's legion began to fall back towards their dropships while Korak started to organize a general retreat. It was at this moment that the artillery strike smashed into the position that the two Primarchs held. And while Korak somehow managed to basically jump out of the way of the onslaught, Vulcan was caught in this nuclear blast and completely vanished. No one knows where he went. This is where... Vulcan is essentially removed from the battlefield at this point. Behind them, the second wave of traitors continued to slaughter the loyalist Iron Hands, who were killed almost to a man. So all of the traitors who had run back in, who are now behind all of this, have come forward and they're killing the Iron Hands through to try to get to the, the second, their second wave reinforcements. Because now we realize the traitors are being second wave reinforced, not the loyalists. Fulgrim, Primarch of the Emperor's Children, and Ferris Manus, Primarchs of the Iron Hands, once the closest of brothers, were now locked in a bitter, hateful struggle. Ferris Manus and his Terminators had pushed their charge past the shattered defenses of the traitors in the moments before the second wave had touched down. Their armor was scarred and bloodied with the stain of traitors who had once been their brothers in arms. The Iron Hand Morlocks Terminators were unstoppable, their claws crackling with barely contained lightning and their eyes red with rage. Before them braced the Phoenix Guard of the Emperor's children, fully aware of just how deadly these warriors could be. Letting out a furious battle cry, Fulgrim's Phoenix Guard charged and met the Morlocks in a furious melee. Electric fire jumped from golden-edged halberds of the Phoenix Guard to the blue-wreathed lightning claws of the Morlocks, the storm of battle engulfing Fulgrim himself. 
However, he somehow stood above it, awaiting the dark armored figure of his brother. Ferris Manus's smile faltered as he began to truly appreciate the depths of hatred his brother must hold for him. But he had long awaited this moment of reckoning. Ever since Fulgrim had come to him with his betrayal, each knew only one of them would walk away from whatever coming conflict was about to happen. It's a very grim situation for the loyalists in any way you paint it. So Ferris Manus, uh, in the last episode, we talked about him. Basically, he pushed through with his Terminators. Yeah. Even though he knew it was uh, like a suicide mission, right? And he didn't quite know it was a suicide mission. What he knew was that the... He was trying to overtake them, right? Yeah, he wanted to overrun them because they were retreating. And then they turn on him. He wanted to take the momentum. Gotcha. Win win the day. And he and I mean they did really well because whatever token resistance the traitors had left in their wake just dissolved like paper until they hit the Phoenix Guard, essentially. And at this point they each have the weapons that they smithed for each other in their own hands, right? So like Ferris Man has yes. smithed that that hammer and yes. for for Fulgrim and vice yep. versa, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Fulgrim had made a weapon for Ferris, and Ferris had made a weapon for Fulgrim. But they took them back from one another, and now they're wielding them against each other. Yes. Gotcha. Just in a poetic sense, it's pretty pretty cool. Oh, yeah. It's about to not be cool. Right? Here oh, is I bet. first major step. <laughs> See, not everything, not everything is assholes and, and fart jokes, man. I have, <laughs> I can see, I can see the artsy fartsy poetic part of it as well. Probably not elaborated on as, as, as well elo- as you. Eloquently. eloquently yeah, as eloquently <laughs> as you, but uh, you know, hey, that hammer is like a, a big asshole and that sword is just like a huge slong and they're, you know, they're trying to meet each other in battle. Got it. I had to devolve it it back into my. They're trying to meet each other. (laughs) I had to devolve it back into Marky's terms. Marky's meaty terms. That's right. The death of Ferris Manus. Spoilers, bro. Ferris taunted Fulgrim for his betrayal of the Emperor and siding with the Warmaster Horus and how that had been his undoing. The traitors were on their back foot, losing, with another four legions even now landing to reinforce the soon-to-be-triumphant loyalists. Unable to control himself any longer, Fulgrim laughed in his brother's face, shook his head, and told Ferris it was the loyalists who were trapped. Fulgrim then pointed to the northern edge of the Ogrol Depression. Ferris followed his brother's gaze and saw a massive force muster in the landing zone to support the loyalists, but it lasted for only seconds before the slaughter began, those allies opening fire into the withdrawing Raven Guard and Salamanders. Then the other shoe dropped, and the retreating forces of the War Master, the World Eaters, Sons of Horus, and Death Guard turned and fell on the veteran companies of the Tenth Legion Iron Hands. While his sons fought bravely into the last, Ferris could only watch as they began to be hacked to pieces by forces that greatly outnumbered them. Teeth bared with all the fury of his homeworld Medusa, Ferris turned and lunged at Fulgrim, the two Primarchs meeting one another in savage combat. Fulgrim wielded Forgebreaker, the hammer he had forged as a gift to Ferris. Ferris was wielding Fireblade, the sword he had forged as a gift to Fulgrim. These weapons, once given in brotherhood, now clashed in rage and vengeance. Sword met... I thought it was reversed. I think that's backwards, right? 
Nope. You're saying the sword had been forged as a gift to, or Ferris is wielding the fire blade, but Ferris is wielding the, the hammer. Ferris made the fire blade for, for, for Fulgrim. Don't pay attention to the Forge World model on the screen. That is incorrect. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so Ferris <laughs> had the blade. If you're joining us for $3, $6, or $9, you'll see that there is a Forge World model on. But yeah, in this model, the weapons are reversed for whatever reason. Okay, so Ferris had the sword and Fulgrim had the hammer. Yeah, Ferris made the sword for Fulgrim because Fulgrim's style was much more to fight with a blade, and Fulgrim had made a hammer for Ferris because Ferris's style was much more to fight with a hammer. Gotcha. Which is probably why these Forge World models are built that way, because you can either put them together in a battle or you can separate them and use them separately in 30k. So if you were going to field Ferris, you'd probably field him with his hammer, not with the sword from this one fight. Gotcha. These weapons had once been given in brotherhood and then now clashed in rage and vengeance. Sword met, hammer haft, fiery slashes and great impacts and denting armor as the two Primarchs traded blows powered by hatred that only brothers could muster. Each was wounded deeply in the struggle, eventually both being brought low. Ferris on his knees and Fulgrim pushed back, the hammer forge breaker laying out of reach. Ferris struggled back to his feet and bellowed a war cry as he brought the flaming blade down toward Fulgrim's exposed neck. But before the blow could fall, Fulgrim drew and lashed out with a single-edged, demonically-possessed blade of Slanish that he had taken from the Xenos known as the Lair. Chaos now blazing through him, Fulgrim surged with a burst of strength and speed, regaining his feet as this silvery blade bit deep into Ferris's breastplate. Ferris cried out and staggered to his knees once again, fire blade sliding from his grasp as he struggled to gasp for air. That's also the reason that this is done that way. That's actually the demon blade. That's not fire. That's not the weapon that Fulgrim created or that Ferris made. That's the, the demon blade. The demon blade that always spoke to him. Actually, here, here's a better picture. So in this picture, Ferris has the flaming sword and Fulgrim has the demon blade. So Fulgrim raised the blade to take Ferris's life, but found that he didn't have the heart to kill his brother. In an instant, he saw the monstrous betrayal that he had participated in and knew the mistake he had made in claiming the demonic blade from the lair. He struggled against its influence, attempting to drop the demonic blade which had corrupted him. He now knew everything he had strived towards was a lie, but the blade's will was in control and he knew he had come too far to stop now. As Ferris reached for Fireblade, the sword burst into fire once more with its creator's touch. Fulgrim desperately battled the will of the demonic blade in his hand, trying in desperation to slow its arc. Then he lost himself, no longer in control of his own body, and the sword parted skin, muscle, and bone of one of the Emperor's genetically engineered sons. Fireblade fell from lifeless fingers, and Ferris fell to the ground, his head parted from his shoulders. Ferris Manus now lay dead, and at the hands of his brother, and the brother he had once been closest to. All around him, his iron hands died, shot at point-blank range, torn apart, and then hacked into pieces. The Tenth Legion would nearly share their Primarch's fate, almost being annihilated in the bloodiest three hours mankind had experienced to date. So, is this why they get, uh... Robot parts because they got hacked to pieces. The Iron Warriors replace their bodies with robotic parts. That has to do with the Dark Mechanicus or the Dark Mechanic come. Isn't that what Ferris Manus? No, is? Ferris Ferris Manus had um, Necrodermis hands from a different thing, and yeah, there is Iron Hands will get will take Iron Hand prosthetics, 
but the the legion that will like cut bar- parts of their body off on purpose and replace it with robotics is the iron warriors perturabos legion i thought the iron hands do that too though they don't do it on purpose like, uh, so so a lot of space marines will fight against the idea of taking bionics they would much rather have like fat grown replacements because they feel that there's like a taint of the machine that comes with having prosthetics the iron hands don't fight that but the iron warriors are the ones that are like no nah, i sawed off my leg last saturday because i was bored now i have a robotic one and there's a difference between my arm was blown off and I replaced it and I got bored. So I cut off my leg. (laughs) (laughs) There's a hedonistic difference. (laughs) Yeah. I just assumed the iron hands were like, lost my arm. Guess I'll replace it with the robotic arm because it's better. I got shot in the nuts and now I have a fat, fat dick. Yeah. They'll, (laughs) they'll replace, they'll replace it because it's available. What about your nuts? (laughs) What about your nuts? More space for dick. So they'll they'll accept the replacement. They won't. So like, there's a whole idea that the Skatari have that the flesh is weak. So they'll specifically replace. You know, yeah, the I assume they kind of shared that same mentality, but that's not the case. Iron it's, within, iron without. Iron within, iron without is the Iron Warriors, the, the bad ones, <laughs> the right. baddies. The Iron Hands are more like they willingly accept the pragmatic solution. So instead of like the ultramarines being like, absolutely not. I must be the pinnacle of mankind with only the genetics of my Roman ancestors marching through my veins. The iron warriors are like, uh, no, we or the iron hands are like, this is the problem. The iron warriors, the iron hands, the Imperial fists. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. The, the iron the hands. Tyrannic war veterans that had to be replaced with fucking metal parts and shit. We well, can only the, grow so many fucking arms. Right. We can only grow so many at a time. The iron hands are more like we need to get back into the fight. So if you've got a prosthetic doc, if you've got a prosthetic that you can glue to me right now, I'll pick mm. up my bolter and get back out there. Iron so hands are like, yeah, yeah. get that shiny one. So like, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. I don't know if we could have a full episode on it, but like, I'm curious how robust these uh, prosthetics are. Like, it's definitely not like, Star Wars Jedi fucking Anakin's arm type shit because that seems like more uh, like eloquent, right? Like it, it seems like sturdier than like a T eight hundred type deal. You know what I They're, mean? The technology that the Space Marines and the Mechanicus use to replace their body parts would be a little bit more along the lines of the T eight hundred, as to where the, but even like, more beefed up because it's obviously not made for stealth. It's made to yeah, be war torn in like gnarly war not yeah, just think, like, think of the t yeah think of the t800 with no skin on it <laughs> right with no skin yeah. and, and and not meant for stealth right because right. originally the t800s were built to to, to infiltrate blend. into yeah with human skin yeah uh, well, so they have they don't have that i guess holding them back right they're just built to be sturdy and it, fucking if, work if your entire culture is made up of, I think, canonically six foot six Austrians that can bench press 700,000 pounds, yes, the T-800 was made to blend into society. But like, think about the difference <laughs> in size between Arnold and Mark Hamill. Right, right. So, so the, the Space Marines prosthetics are Arnold's arm in the second half of Terminator 2 after he's had the skin ripped off of it. Right. And the... Yeah, and that's how that's how essentially the, the mechanicus the Inquisition gets gets the Jedi one. Yeah, the Inquisition uh, would get yeah. the super refined one. But in that case, it might be like made out of gold or made out of silver. 
it's just as intricate and just as like, like lifelike plated, looking, plated. Yeah. but it's going to be like plated and like special. You said, more eloquent than, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a, it's kind of just overall a different aesthetic. Um, I, it's probably a little bit more like, I, I swear to God, there's an anime where people get like prosthetic replacements and they're like big and bulky and like mech looking. And that would be, I would say 40 K battle wow. line prosthetics. Cyberpunk. Are I'm very, trying to, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of Cyberpunk what it was. did did that. Well, no, Cyberpunk. Well, I mean, they had some Even of that. Cyberpunk's pretty cr- like Chrome. Yeah. It's Chrome and flashy. It's like um, um, I'm trying to think of like real steel type deal. You know what I mean? That's yeah. That that Rock'em Sock'em robot style. Uh, yeah. Furiosa Furiosa's arm from Mad Max. Like that's that that's actually too junky. It's, I would almost say like Ash, right? From uh, from Evil Dead, from uh, Dark uh, Army of Darkness. Yes, that would. Yeah, that that. There you go. Yeah, Ash's arm from Army of Darkness. Like, that seems be a more lot robust. Closer. Than, yeah, that's a lot closer to what the Space Marines and the Skatari get. And the Skatari because they don't give a shit. The Space Marines because it needs to be battle line. If it if it already comes with armor plating, it's better. So Ooh, or like. Uh, Oh, what the hell was his name? Uh, Ratcheck from uh, Starship Troopers. We had like that fucking yeah, meaty yeah. metal arm. Yeah, that too. Any oh, of those yeah. like really big, bulky prosthetic, like the the utilitarian prosthetics. Very. There's not a lot of elegance to them. As to where like the Inquisition is going to have somebody carve down all that extra metal and remove it. It's just going to be the mechanisms underneath. Right. Um, Star yeah. Wars, Anakin style. Yeah. But the stuff that the Apothecarian is going to have like on the battlefield is literally going to, it's going to be the diesel truck version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you show up, they're going to bolt that to you. They're not going to give you the Porsche. They're going to give you the tractor. On the other side of the battlefield, the Raven Guard braced as the word bearers vanguard led by Primarch Logar, First Captain Corferon, and First Chaplain Erebus slammed into them. It was into this site of bitter conflict that the word bearers elite Gal Vorbach raged, angling for Primarch Korax of the Raven Guard. The Astartes warriors of the Gal Vorbach had given themselves over to demonic possession, and they swarmed in mass over Korax, hoping to use their demonically enhanced strength and speed to overwhelm him. Despite their numerical advantages, however, Korax laid into them, slaying them with impunity. Korax's anger was released, and he laid into the word-bearers, butchering them with ease. Even Argol Tal, the crimson lord of the Gal Vorbach, and one of Logar's blessed sons, was ripped apart by the raging demigod. Just as Korax slew word-bearers, Logar waded through and killed Ravenguard in droves, matching the intensity of his brother. Suddenly, Logar paused in his attack as he noticed the terrible blood toll Korax was reaping from the Gol Vorbach, and despite the protests of Corferon and Erebus, began to carve a new bloody path towards Korax. Behind him, he left a carpet of dead Ravenguard. Logar could feel the power seething within him. Unlike his brother, Magnus of the Thousand Sons, Logar had always despised and feared his psychic potential, locking it away in his mind and refusing to use it. However, those mental chains now fell free and it rose within him. A psychic scream tore from Logar's mind, echoing across the battlefield. His latent psychic powers, now colored by the power of chaos, enhanced not only his own physical body, but those of his sons. He stood at the heart of the killing fields, winged and haloed in an amorphous embrace of psychic fire bellowing out his brother's name. 
and Korax answered it in kind, shrieking out his own battle cry, the betrayed screaming defiance in the face of the betrayer. Awash in the released psychic powers of Logar, the Volgorbak underwent the final steps of their transformation. Ceramite armor fused to flesh, and dense bone ridges, spines, and blades sprouted from their bodies, their hands curling into razored claws and demonic wings bursting from their backpacks. They now inhabited bestial demonic forms, the first of what would become known as the possessed. A change that overcame them even as the cruise. You pronounce this weapon right. The Crozius. Even as the Crozius clashed with Lightning Claw, and another pair of Primarchs entered their own death duel. Korax fought to slaughter and kill. Logar fought to barely keep his life. Korax hurled insults and accusations at Logar, demanding explanations for his heresy and treason. Logar shared the future that he had glimpsed. One of their father, a bloodless corpse on a throne of gold, screaming forever into the void. Korax became even more enraged by these lies and cut Logar's face deeply with his lightning claws. These would be scars that Logar would bear until the day of his death. I think it's interesting. Again, somebody on the chaos side literally shares the truth of the 41st millennia and the other Primarch just doesn't want to hear it. So... What uh, what form did Logar take, or what form is he in? He's is he the snake Primarch? No, Logar just looks like an old an older dude in power armor. He looks like an old preacher in power armor. Um, because it was saying here that like he embraced his psychic potential and kind of like made a little transformation, right? He didn't transform. So Logar embraced and released his psychic potential. I just brought a picture of him up, by the way. Okay. Um, and as he did that, basically the the scream of psychic energy that left his body hit the mm. Val Gorbach. And the Val Gorbach are the elite warriors of the word bearers at this point. They they've okay. made packs with demons that basically make them stronger and faster, but they just look like people. When that scream tore across them, they became what we know of in 40k as space marine possessed which are just like those bigger guys with like crazy like claw arms and shit right yeah and their their masks are like split open and they've got like extra teeth and shit like they're they're demon space marines essentially yeah um and all of the Golvarbach turned into those things as this wave hit them but logar even to his death essentially well he's kind of back we don't know what he looks like now but yeah. logar up until his death before he was you know, reincarnated as a demon Primarch, essentially continued to look like just an old wise, uh, like an old wise scholar, scholar wearing power armor. And his power yeah. armor is like super intricately carved with all of these weird symbols and like runes and shit. And is just Korax that much of a badass or is Lorgar just not that good at combat? Or yes. like both? We'll, we'll talk about it in a second. <laughs> good question, Marky. <laughs> So Logar had always been more of a scholar than a warrior, while, Cor while Korax had become a warrior of great experience throughout his decades of service in the Great Crusade. It was this lack of experience that cost Logar dearly, as Korax impaled his brother on his meter-long talons, which scraped along the sides of Logar's spine as they passed through his stomach and came out of his back. Such a wound wasn't fatal to a Primarch, but Korax then lifted Logar from his feet and began to slowly tear his brother in two. Logar dropped his crozius and wrapped his hands around Korax's throat. 
Even after Logar smashed his forehead into Korax's face over and over again, breaking the other Primarch's nose and, and dashing his once handsome features, the Raven Lord remained untroubled. When his lightning claws eventually skipped off and snagged against Logar's hearted bones, Korax was forced to tear the weapons out of the out of the other Primarch's stomach, worsening the already grievous wounds. Logar fell to his knees, coughing and sputtering as he struggled to hold his arms over the ruination of what had been his stomach. Korax raised his one good claw. His other arm currently was sagging uselessly at his side for a death blow, and Logar reflected on the irony that out of the Emperor's twenty sons, he alone had never wished to be a warrior, yet here he would die at the center of one of the Imperium's worst brutal battlefields. However, Korax's blades never fell, as they were met by an opposing clash of metal. Korax turned his baleful gaze on the face as pale as his own and into his eyes just as black as his. His lightning claws locked oh, into shit, the mirror son. of his own weapons. Is it Mr. Conrad from fucking the top rope with the steel chair? <laughs> Straining to finish his killing blow. While Korax's face was a ruination of blood and set with the determination of battle, Conrad Cruz's face was a taunting but mirthless grin of a corpse. The Primarch of the Night Lords clamped his free hand around Korax's wrist to keep his brother from escaping before turning to Logar and ordering him to stand up. Korax didn't waste time and ignited his flight pack, burning through all of his reserves to tear himself free of Conrad, leaving his clawed weapon behind in the process. Kurz laughed at his fleeing brother, before shoving Logar back towards his word bearers. Around the two remaining Primarchs, the word bearers and Raven Guard continued to fight, Logar turning to Conrad to thank him for saving his life. But the Night Hunter replied that next time he would let Logar die. Logar's response, however, died on his lips as he saw the demonic transformation that had come over the Gaul Vorbach. Ceramite helms had split into demonic skulls. Weapons, claws, and bone ridges covered their bodies. Kurz was disgusted by the sight and turned his back on Logar, commenting that the word bearer's Primarch had become rancid with corruption. Although grievously wounded, Logar would live and the traitors had won the day. Horus now commanded nine legions, and of the nine loyalist legions, his forces had almost destroyed a full three of them. The path of Terra and the siege of the homeworld was left open. So, essentially, Conrad came in, stopped uh, fucking Horax from killing Logar, killing Logar. Yep. and then picked up Lorgar and basically, like, jetted away? No. Korax jetted away. Oh, so Korax, Korax, jetted Korax jetted away because yeah. he had one arm not <laughs> that was useless at the moment. Uh, so and that during, arm was bro- the, the weapons were broken. So like so, there's yeah. Cruz ready to go and fresh. Right. Yeah. Cru- and, Cruz is ready with two weapons, and and Korax is stuck with one because Logar had damaged his other arm. I was going to say that he so, couldn't use it. So Logar ended up getting some kind of blow on on. Uh, yeah, ended up pretty good. Either either that, <laughs> See, either that so hard his arm stopped working. <laughs> either that <laughs> or down. when, um, either that or when Korax escaped the nuclear blast that, as far as we know at this moment, uh, killed the one Vulcan. that killed Vulcan. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, does Vulcan Alle- come back at any point? Allegedly killed Vulcan. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Right. Does does he come back at any point in this battle? No, he's done okay. for this battle. 
Gotcha, gotcha. That's unfortunate. Yeah, they knocked him out of the it, ring. It, <laughs> he, did, he took a nuclear blast to like the chin. Yeah, yeah. well, like, you it, know, it hit Vulcan. I expect more from my Primarchs. I'm not gonna lie. It hit him. <laughs> it hit him like a money shot at the end yeah. of a bad porno. He's oh, like, boy, I see this bad. coming in. Don't worry, boys. I'll take it. I'll take it for you. <laughs> Right on the chin. <laughs> Came with that good old gawk gawk. <laughs> yeah, He's like, I, the, the trick, boys, is to relax the jaw. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if you noticed, Marky, but... Uh, Unhinge the jaw. And relax the throat. There you <laughs> go. Thank the you. Throat. <laughs> and you gotta take that olive juice in first so your throat don't get raw. Anyway. The, uh, I don't know if you noticed... But something people might not also pick up on is uh, Conrad Cruz is disgusted with Logar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah 100%. Cruz didn't sign up for chaos. Most of most of the traitors, most of the renegades, and that's the reason why renegades and traitors get used interchangeably a lot, especially at the beginning of an army turning from the emperor. A lot of the times, the first moment they go renegade, they have no interest in anything chaos. Um, One of the things that actually has annoyed me about the way that the lore has progressed, 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 prolapsed, progressed over the years is that the term of renegade has kind of gone away. And GW kind of has this new outlook where like once you turn from the emperor, you turn towards chaos. And I really liked the the like third, uh, well, the fourth, fifth, sixth edition, like hazy time where there were just renegades, there were just space marines that didn't agree with either side, that didn't want anything to do with the Imperium and didn't want anything to do with chaos. And I now is I that hope more of like the unaligned, like the the unaligned yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, chaos but, in a sense. You're right? you're thinking of so there's 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 five camps of chaos. There are the four major camps of chaos, the four major gods, corn. Zinch, Slanish, and Nurgle. And then there's Chaos Undivided. Chaos Undivided treats all four of those gods as one pantheon. So, mm. uh, like Abaddon, for instance, who right. follows Chaos Undivided, he gets gifts from all of them and he doesn't serve any of them. As yeah. to where you know, you know how you Angron can get like, serves corn. You know, you can get like Starburst and you can get like the all pink Starburst. Pink, yeah, yeah. And then you can get like the regular Starburst that's all different flavors. <laughs> right, it's right, like right. That. Okay, okay. <laughs> I like that explanation. Yeah. That makes just, sense, right? Just yeah. pink. <laughs> the yeah, Starburst. Like when you buy, just yeah, pink. it's like yeah. when you buy M&M's, you just want that one color. That's what it is. Dude, yeah. so when I was all growing greens. up, my mom used to take care of old people when I was a little kid. Uh, she was a caretaker. And there was this one old lady, I forgot her name, but it was this old lady, and she had a jar of brown, nothing but brown M&Ms. You used to be able to buy just brown M&Ms. Yeah, just brown M&Ms. And let me tell you something, dude. She would always give me these brown M&Ms, and they would always taste fucking weird. (laughs) Because because they they sat sat there for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you never take candy from old people's like especially taffy, because it's all stuck together. It was like old people in depression. Like if if <laughs> that had a taste, chocolate, she chocolate it in their prison pocket. Chocolate gets really weird and like chalky when it gets, especially M and M's. It old. Just, but it had a weird taste. It didn't have a weird texture. It just had a weird taste. Like yeah, it, it tastes, almost like a smell. Right, it tastes so, weird too. Yeah. Have so you ever seen you old chocolate? Bad, whenever you have bad chocolate, you think of this lady now. 
No, but I just I, old I can never look at brown M&Ms the same way. So like I've I've had a lot of like traumatizing food experiences in my life and I think I've shared a couple on the podcast. And like every time I share one, like my my wife, she rolls her eyes and now my daughter rolls her eyes cuz I'm like, yeah, I don't like sunny side up eggs. And they're like, "What? Why?" And I'm like, I tell them the story and they're like they roll their eyes and, I, and I'm just like, "What? I just don't like them." Like it just reminds me of that certain that's that situation, right? I like I don't like ding-dongs. It brings you back to a certain time in, in your childhood. Yeah, I don't like Jello. I don't like Ding Dongs. I don't like sunny side up eggs. I don't like brown M and M's. Well, I'll tell you. Don't look at me all fucking judgmental and shit no, like that, I'll, John, I'll, Tom. I'll, I'll tell you what. If you're if you're a Patreon, I get it because I agree. You can look at this body and tell I don't have any food issues. For me, traumatized. Well, for me, for me, it's like. Like you, you know, you're saying like, oh, brown M&M's definitely like, not gluten, right, right? Or they like, like taste old, right? <laughs> right, right. You can't like put your finger on it. So I'm really good at explaining what bad things taste like to me, and people don't understand because they're like, how the fuck do you know what that tastes like? And I'm like, doesn't take much for imagination, you know? For me, <laughs> oh, I thought right? it's gonna like, say you've had a lot of different things in your mouth. No, exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm fucking saying. Yeah, everybody fucking says that, and I'm like, nah, man, just fucking imagine it, bitch, like. Like, damn, like, this tastes like Fromunda and yeah. sawdust. Uh, like, honestly, does it really like, take how, a whole lot for you to imagine what I'm it, talking about? Like, it, fuck. Re- it really shouldn't because smell and taste are incredibly linked. That's what like, I'm saying. Things taste different when your nose is stuffed because you're not smelling them. So if you smell a really bad Duke, you kind of taste a really bad Duke. Yeah, it's and all it's not in the fun. same spot. Your tongue ain't that far away from your fucking nose. Yeah. Yeah, your sinuses go right to the back of your tongue. <laughs> yeah, especially when you lick it. What? <laughs> especially you lick it. when you lick it. <laughs> That's not always the case, though, Come because on. I've smelled some pretty bad shit. Do you know? Do you know that you can actually not literally. taste? Do you know that you can actually taste garlic through your asshole? Really? Yeah. <laughs> you have taste receptors on have your you, asshole. Have you tried this? <laughs> no, it's one of those like weird. But how things do you know about- it's real? How do because you taste again? That? Does it fucking take much to imagine? Because it's one of those weird things that we know through medical science that both garlic <laughs> and I think cinnamon you can actually taste through your butthole or your vagina. All right, now hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go any further, hold, calm down, Chuck. I'm trying to answer this question. All right, so now do you taste it on your tongue or do you taste it in your asshole? No, it's more like you get the sense memory of what oh the my taste God. is. Can you imagine you're if you being like, way too literal if about you it. you like fart and you're all... Okay, okay, okay. Here, so here we you're go. saying here you we go. a lot of right, peppermint patties and uh, your farts are better? I can, I can tell you, I, I know both of you, I know all three of you understand this, but I don't have to convince Tom because Tom knows where I'm coming from. So I know both of you understand this. When you eat really, really spicy food, yeah. you feel it twice. Oh, God. Yeah, no, dude. I just did that recently. Yeah, but that's different. That's different. <laughs> You're not tasting it. Yeah, like I'm not, ta- I'm feeling it. I got, I got <laughs> the fucking, the Cholo the sense burrito memory. from Burroughs and <laughs> Dude, that place is, that, oh, oh my God. God. So I got that, oh. and dude, I, oh, I don't know what so, they did. They changed the recipe, because that fucking thing, dude, I can't get through half of it. And I shit the other day, and I fucking needed like an air conditioner, dude, just for my butthole. I was like, I was like, dude, did, for I, my life. did I fall and rub my cornhole on asphalt? Like, what the fuck? I felt like I had road rash. Like, it's like, what in the Urgal depression is happening dude, here? Fucking <laughs> is, there, is there a fucking pepper flake just stuck oh, on my dude, asshole dude, right now? So let me get this straight. So, so let me get this straight. So what you're telling me is. If somebody reverse cowboys one of those ghost peppers, oh yeah, they're 
Their tongue is going to burn, and they're going to taste it. No, their asshole is going to burn. Yeah, asshole, you're going to taste it with your butt. Do you got to pay extra for this stuff, or like what's going on now? This gets into a level of neuroscience that is its own entire podcast of medical professionals that would talk about it. But like, this brings all new stuff to Sonesh. Hold on, there's a sense memory of what it tastes like that hits your brain. Whether or not you're actually tasting it is academic so, so what if it's something you've never tasted and you so you think if i fuck some girl in the ass <laughs> covered in garlic she, she knows what what it tastes she's like, like hmm, <laughs> not bad <laughs> give her a lineup you're all which dick is it this time <laughs> it only happens with certain things okay garlic, so garlic and spite and like spicy peppers are in that there's a couple of other things okay what, so, what about so, when those sorority guys you guys are way too are deep doing, you, guys, you, uh, you guys are literally uh, like they're doing you guys the, are the, the beer, the beer of, bongs you, you know what i'm talking about Tom? they ride. do the beer bongs <laughs> but they're using like whiskey and vodka instead that's yeah. different so that's called they taste that's called that's butt boofing. chugging that's called that's boofing. different I thought that was butt chugging but can they taste yeah. it I thought that I was mean, Chuck, You would know better than us. I've never in, gone to college. In theory, <laughs> yeah, but you've been in to those theory, parties. If you did it with <laughs> like fireball, maybe. Oh, God, but now, the reason, it's not the reason. So you put hot tamales into the vodka and shake it up, then you would taste the cinnamon. So, so it's not like a taste sense, right? You're saying that it's just a res- it's something a that happens in the brain, right? It's a sense memory. So, yeah. like, it's something that you you feel like you have a garlic clove in your asshole, and you're like. <laughs> that's garlic but you don't taste it right you just like oh instead, have of, that, instead of having a full and it, it, from what i understand because this is yeah. not something i have ever experienced and this is just weird medical science bullshit that I, I'm, I know. I'm not accusing After, you right your mouth shock is I'm, coming trying back. To, I'm trying it's to describe favor? it like your mouth doesn't feel like you just ate garlic but like right. the back of your tongue <laughs> tastes like garlic huh the That's the way it's been described. Your mouth huh. doesn't feel like you tasted garlic. It feels like your butthole. Oh my god! Tasted garlic. But the reason that and this is like why people. The reason why the podcast goes on way longer oh, than dude, we've been in shit. Yeah, that was too. Good. That was too good. I was sitting quietly and I was like, "Nah, I'm getting in on this." Uh, well, I, I got another question then, because remember they had that cinnamon challenge. Yeah. So if you take a spoonful of it, mm, it you, you, you're not gonna be able to put it up there. You're oh it's like you know it right out. Yeah, you know when everybody like coughs and it makes a cloud, you just have it out of your butt. How how big is the spoon? Because I mean, I, I don't know. How big of a spoon do you need? Maybe a ladle? I don't know. I've shoved a spoon up someone's ass before. Chuck, I think you need to go back to school. These are the questions that we need answered. This is the research grants that need to be awarded. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> What's that stuff that's like cinnamon? Is it like cumin? Uh, Come what? Nutmeg. Nutmeg. Now, can you taste nutmeg from your ass? I, guys, literally all I know is Nutella? that apparently garlic and, and, and cinnamon. Like, is it nut cin- Not meg? cinnamon, is like that- spearmint. <laughs> whatever, whatever, like the hot, the, yeah. the, the hot, Meg's the garlic and, and the hot What's stuff are the ones now? that you can taste. Yeah, okay. But Interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know how much deeper it goes. I always thought well, that was hard. Depends of the size of the spoon. <laughs> I was like, I just said deeper. It's coming. <laughs> All right, Mark, it, you gonna read us well? this quote? I can. Yes. <laughs> All right, calm down, you degenerates. Jesus Christ, I'm fucking run a goddamn podcast here. Hey, listen, don't blame us because you're constantly trying to run a train. All right, I'm just saying. <laughs> 
coming. <laughs> the garlic training's a coming. Fucking... <laughs> All right. Man, it's going to cause such uh. an aftershock. <laughs> it's like Dude, the third you time said, you've told you that said, joke. You said aftershock, and good. I fucking tasted it. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Like, See, you, you even have to put anything you just up like there. To say aftershock, and, just, and I'm like, like <laughs> what's aftershock? Aftershock is fucking basically fireball pre-fireball before fireball. It oh, was in really? A frosted glass like bottle. Yeah, and it looked like it was like red, and then it was like bright fucking red, and then it had like the bottle was shaped like ice on the top. Yep. And what? every motherfucker in high school would drink this shit, yep. dude. Like what? every jock, like this shit's fucking amazing. Shock, bro. I've never. Every single person would end up throwing up in the toilet. I've never heard of it, but I get. I'm not a big drinker. Also, it, so. it was around the same time as Zima. I haven't heard of that either. See, there you go. Oh God, there it is. That's what it is. So you found, found it? it. Yeah, I just found it. Right. Ooh, it's actually you where, can buy where, it where, still. Hit us with that quote. You can actually. Oh, buy I'm it. trying. <laughs> I'm trying. Devolve the podcast for a good ten minutes. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It's a, we got to the end that the Bullshit. battle is over. We're in the mop up. We're we're transitioning from the battle we're, to the mop up. We're, phase, in, the so it's okay. we're, in, the- we're in the aftershock. We're in the aftershock, if you will. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Uh, oh fuck! I couldn't. <clears throat> through the battle had ended. Though. That's not through. <laughs> <laughs> Though the battle had ended and the enemy was far from reach of our blades, most of us didn't come back from the Urgold Depression. Even those men who escaped, those pitiful few. Even they didn't come back. They're still there now. We all are. Fighting for our lives. Unknown legionary survivor of the Istvan 5 massacre. This is one of those situations where even though the battle is won, the war is not over. And in this case, that even refers to the fighting that was happening on Istvan 5. Ferris Manus and most of the 10th Legion Iron Hands were dead. Vulcan had completely vanished, and Korax was badly wounded, having to flee the center of a swirling mass of word-bearers before he was killed by Conrad. The remaining salamanders and raven guard on the field just can't surrender. This is that type of war. Knowing their doom was close at hand, the Astartes of the salamanders and raven guard didn't bend or break, but fought on like never before, determined to make the traitors pay in blood for every one of their number that fell. They were caught in an ever-tightening vice between the legions of the drop site and the original traitor forces behind them at the Urgul Depression. The Alpha Legion and Wordbearers followed their leaders, their bolters full and chainswords bright and gleaming, a seemingly never-ending tide of fresh warriors. The Dai's Ira killed scores of loyalists with every blast of its guns, flames vaporizing hundreds of loyalists even while turning the black sand below their boots into glass. The traitor tanks roared from the Urgirl hills, killing with first their weapons and then crushing those before them beneath their treads. However, the Raven Guard and Salamanders refused to surrender. Suffering a staggering amount of casualties, they were still managing to hold their own, at least until the Primarchs Mortarion of the Death Guard and Gron of the World Eaters joined the fray. With victory now firmly in his grasp, Horus himself even took to the field, surrounded by Captain Falcus Kyber and the Justicarian Terminators, along with the remnants of his Mornival. The killing fields of Istvan V were thick with blood, 
and any hope the loyalists had of stopping Horus's little rebellion had been torn to ragged, bloody ribbons. The Iron Warriors had also removed any hope of the loyalists' escape, having turned their weapons on the drop pods and airships of the first wave within seconds of opening fire. In orbit, the loyalists were faring little better. Caught off guard by the overwhelming firepower of the traitor ships of the Iron Warriors, Word Bearers, Alpha Legion, and Night Lords. Despite the overwhelming odds and massed firepower, some on the planet did manage to escape the battlefield and planet. In this effort, the Raven Guard fared much better than the Salamanders, although the Salamanders did manage to help some of the Iron Hands escape the killing fields later as well. As for Vulcan, the artillery strike we mentioned earlier had been a nuclear attack and had vaporized the salamanders that were with him and ended his participation in the battle. Vulcan himself, however, survived, his unconscious body being taken prisoner by Conrad Cruz, who would go on to torture him for months. There you go, Marky. There's your answer. So did Conrad kill Korax? No, Korax no. got away. Okay, Cor- I, thought, Corax, I thought you had Corax said that he away. killed him. No. no. Gotcha. No. Okay. So, he so Korax, his jump pack and got away. Yeah, Korax used his jump pack to get away, but it tore his gauntlet off. Not his arm or his hand off. He still has his hand, but yeah. his his gauntlet arm on that side is gone. So he's he's one fist and one lightning claw at this point. Hmm. Okay. Although although his left arm is still pretty Messed fucked up. up from uh Logar. It takes a couple of days before he's able to use it again. Hmm. It was at this point that by some whispered order, the Alpha Legion were the first to withdraw from the slaughter, watching on in a still silence as the guns of the Iron Warriors started to slow and then finally abated. The 20th Legion did not partake in the trophy-taking dark rituals and madness that ran among the other traitors across the killing fields. Korax had managed to escape to a fleeing Thunderhawk, but the ship had been shot out of the sky and smashed down somewhere in the Urgul Plateau. On the black sands of Istavan 5, more than 200,000 space marines lay dead. Added to their number was the death of Ferris Manus, Primarch, and the Imperial Army units that had been loyal to the Emperor. Then add to that the capture of Vulcan, the Primarch of the Salamanders, and Corvus Korax, Primarch of the Raven Guard, who is now presumed dead in the crash. Alongside them, their legions had been all but wiped out. With these deaths, so too died the Emperor's dream of dominion over the stars. So they, most Marines died here from the Loyalist factions is what I'm hearing. Most of the Loyalists at this point are dead. From those legions. So some might have escaped on, you know, ships and whatnot, but like we're talking 90% of that legion is dead. 90% of, probably 98% of the Iron Hands, 90% of the Salamanders, and 85% of the Raven Guard at this point are dead. Ish. Of and their that entire is entire legion. I was going to say, and that is of the entire legion. Yeah. That is like, because you're of saying 200,000 200, space marines, that's like you have tens of thousands of space marines in a legion, right? Yes. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be the odd, like, there's 2,000 iron hands attached to some battlefield that was way too far away from this to be involved. Right, right. right. All the outposts yeah. and all the outlying stuff. Yeah. But the main forces of And then of course the space marines that are in the ships in the in orbit too, because there's space marines on those ships. So now, you mentioned also that there was uh like rituals and shit going on. What what kind of things were they doing? The chaos. So as as the as the Alpha Legion stepped back and didn't partake, the the 
beginnings of all of the like, I'm going to get me an ear or I'm going to teabag this guy or whatever. <laughs> like, and, and of course, I'm being Mimi, but yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to start taking skulls and putting yeah, them I'm on my start taking spikes. skulls. Yeah, all of that is starting to happen. And the Alpha Legion is like, we are not partaking. And like well, everyone else, including yeah. the Night Lords, is. I mean, but I could Alpha see the Legion Night Lords. Like the Alpha being Legion the first. had other things that they were about to do too. So yeah. at this point, the Alpha Legion still being kind of double agent e. Is that is that kind of what I'm hearing? At this point, the Alpha Legion is done with their involvement on its Von Five. Okay, they're finished essentially. But yeah, the Alpha Legion getting really deep into what the Alpha Legion did. Uh, the the Alpha Legion's involvement here is everything we've said. There isn't any deeper involvement. The mm. Alpha Legion's deeper involvement in this stage of the heresy, not on this planet, but in this stage of the heresy, is much more in depth and like requires us getting into the Alpha Legion and looking at the Alpha Legion specifically. Gotcha. Because there, okay. there's another uh there's another entire group right now called the Cabal that's kind of trying to potentially stop Horus and the Emperor at the same time. Like they don't want either side to win. There, so, there's other political stuff that starts happening around this time in the universe that the Alpha Legion is involved with. Gotcha. And possessed alleged, Marines, allegedly. <laughs> so the first possessed Marine came from Word Bears? Yes. The Word Bears. The Galvorbach. And other uh, legions now have possessed? So the Chaos Legions in the 41st millennia are not necessarily the legionnaires that were born to those legions. Right. So it's entirely possible that there are sons of Horus in the world eaters now as, as in the 41st, because the legions under the chaos gods kind of operate differently. They kind yeah. of move f free flow into one another. However, the ritual that made the possessed is now shared across all of the legions. So uh, any legion can have possessed. Gotcha, uh, the other okay. thing that happened that happens during Istvan five that we'll talk about really soon explains how the traders ranks were able to grow. And because the traders ranks grew the way they did, or potentially allegedly grew the way they did, lead meant to, that, led to more chaos taint essentially. And, right. And also meant that, you might not be from a son's you might be a son of Horus during the heresy, but not come from sons of Horus gene seed. Gotcha. Because they were essentially harvesting and we'll I'm assuming we'll get into it. They were harvesting loyalist gene seed and using that to uh yep. num yep. upnumber their their legions, yep. right? Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of really gross shit that happens really soon. <laughs> oh yeah. Good old Fabius Bile. And who, what was uh, Fa Fabius? Fabius? Fabius is Amper's Children Apothecarian. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. He's the top one. Yeah, he's the leader do of you, the Apothecarian. Do you, for the do you talk about what the Alpha Legion does kind of at the end of this on Istavan? Uh, we are not going to get all the way through to the end of Istavan in this episode. <laughs> uh, okay. That's fine. I tried, Honestly, I tried. It ended up being uh, like a two and a half hour episode i'm like all right nah, it's getting split. I, no, I get it. <laughs> i'm not gonna lie dude this is probably one of the more interesting like stories that i've heard lore, lore wise like all the primarchs fighting and this betrayal like this was it's 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 brutal yeah he says it like he's heard a lot of lore 
<laughs> like, and there's like he's so much, read a lot of. You know, out yeah. of the four stories I've heard, this one's really interesting. <laughs> well, it's like it's like the the cult, the Gal Vorbach being the possessed. The possessed right. are a unit that exists now. This is where they came from. Like, yeah, that's really cool. There's that's... so much stuff that like this is the battle it came from, and a, a lot of it, it. It's kind of why we're approaching the Horus Heresy on a battle by battle perspective rather than like you know talking about how cool rogel is or whatever like we're talking about the battles they were involved in first hard on (laughs) because it it gives so much context to yeah the way the game runs it's definitely super cool to hear like the little i just i just want to say that i know ryan let everybody know that the reclamation fleet that the fist had you know went on a little side note somewhere because of the chaos gods i just want to say the numbers that are supposedly in that reclamation fleet was were big it was half legion it would have turned the tide of this battle probably that's crazy yeah it would have been completely different winnable it would have been winnable for the loyalists i still think the traitors would have won i don't think the traitors would have won the next battle if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. If the Imperial no, Fist totally has showed yeah. up on Istavan 5, the traitors would have still won, but the next battle, they would have lost. They would have been done in the next one. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. That, fleet, that fleet's fucking huge. It was half of the Imperial Fists. Because yeah, the other they, half stayed, stayed no, home. It was. It may have been more than half, but like a, a, a it was a, a lot because a when portion about, stayed with Rogel, and then the rest of them were headed yeah, to Esteban when, 5. when they talk about like you know the the legions and how the chapters are the size of what uh you know a captain would run is now you know a chapter master runs now right yeah so imagine when they're going down the list and they're like oh captain of the two hundred and fourteenth. Yeah, that means Jesus. that there's 214 units of a chapters, thousand guys, essentially. Oh, not chapters, yeah. companies. Yeah, companies yeah. of a That's thousand just, guys. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's a captain and 214th. It's like how and, fucking many went. And the Imperial Fists and the Ultramarines, by and large, at this time, have the most warriors. Yeah. They're the largest legions. Yeah, they're also the least divided legions. Like. As to where, what's a really good example? How everybody's spread out yeah, across the galaxy. Yeah. And yeah. As to where, like, the Raven Guard at this point, the majority of the Raven Guard are here, but the Raven Guard have, like, a good 10% or 15% of their forces that aren't even at Istvan 5 because they're just too far out. Thus, the Ultramarines and the Imperial Fists don't have that happening. They're, they've always fought as relatively consecutive units. The other example of that, the other two examples of that are the world eaters and the sons of Horus had a tendency not to really spread out. They kind of stayed very condensed. The battle over the dead are gathered into thousands of great funeral pyres on the blackened sands of the Urgul plateau and the skies above the planet burn orange with their reflected glow. These are the traitors dead, by the way. Amid the glassed and glittering sands and towering pillars of black smoke stood thousands of Astartes warriors loyal to Horus. The gathered stood at parade rest before a platform stand that had been built with astonishing speed by the tech priests of the Dark Mechanicus. It was con- Mechanicum of the Dark Mechanicum. It was constructed as a series of graduated tiered cylinders, with the base being some thousands of meters in diameter. Upon this base stood the sons of Horus. Their position as the Warmaster's elite had been secured. Each held a flaming brand, adding to their firelight, reflecting 
off the assembled off of the assembled's armor. The next concentric cylinder above was occupied by the senior officers of the Sons of Horus, while above them on the next tier stood the traitor Primarchs. Angron of the World Eaters, Fulgrim of the Emperor's Children, Mortarion of the Death Guard, Logar of the Word Bearers, Perturabo of the Iron Warriors, Conrad Kurz of the Night Lords, and Alpharius of the Alpha Legion. As a quick note aside, it's very unclear and hard to verify if Omegon was at Istavan 5. And one of the reasons is basically because a lot of the time throughout their history, even though they are twin Primarchs, there are two of them. Only one of them is ever seen at a given time. And like, it's very difficult to tell, are you talking to Alpharius or are you talking to Omegon? And most people don't even know there's two of them. It's like, um, it's like Parent Trap. But a dark side, if you're familiar with the movie Parent Trap from like <laughs> the 80s. They remade that, right, Chuck? Isn't there a new one? Yeah, there's, yes, there's been two of them. I know. Yeah, yeah Lindsay I'm, Lohan's in the maybe, other okay, one. I was going to say, I think, I think Lindsay Lohan's jo- in the other Jody one. Jodie Foster oh. and Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. Jodie Foster's in the first one. So. so basically, like one twin does a bunch of fucked up shit and then switches out with the other twin, and then the other twin acts perfectly innocent because they didn't actually do any of that shit. And that's the stuff that Alpharius and Omegon did. However, at this point in history, it's suggested that Omegon isn't really on the heresy train, even though he's like kind of irrevocably going down the path towards it. He didn't want this. And that's another weird thing about the Alpha Legion, allegedly. Every single time we mention anything with the Alpha Legion, allegedly. (laughs) mostly yeah <laughs> they they come at night <laughs> they mostly come at night mostly. the blood of the fallen still clung to these warriors armor and their cloaks snapped in the harsh uncaring wind that came off of the urgol depression a hundred meters above the primarchs on the uppermost tier stood horus his clawed gauntlet held high in salute the great furred cloak of some beast hung from his shoulders, and the funeral pyres reflected from the amber eye that was held at the center of his breastplate. He was further lit from some unseen light source below, casting him into a red light which gave him the appearance of a statue of some legendary hero. As the sun dipped below the horizon, a flight of assault craft roared out of the Urgul Hills and across the Depression, tilting their wings in salute to the war master and his assembled warriors. The amassed Astartes warriors howled and bayed in adoration, then hammered their clenched right fists to their breastplates in a salute to Horus. Across the northern cliff slopes, a blazing line of phosphor snaked across the ground and described an enormous blazing eye on the hillside. The cheers and howling reached new heights as the eye of Horus seared itself into the very surface of the world. Super heavy tanks fired salvos in salute and the towering mass of the titan Dies Eris inclined its massive head towards the War Master. The ashes of the fallen fell like confetti around the parade grounds, as thousands of Astartes shouted themselves hoarse. Hail Horus, hail Horus. And in your best Horus voice, Marky, please. The road to Terra is open. The time has come for us to take the war to the Emperor in his most impregnable fastness. We will make immediate preparation for the invasion of Terra and an assault on the Imperial Palace. Make no mistake, and it will be ours, my brothers. This will be no easy task, for the Emperor and his deluded followers 
will fight hard to prevent us from interfering with his plans for such godhood. Doubtless, much blood has yet to be spilled, theirs and our own. But the prize is the galaxy itself. Are you with me? Warmaster Horus, Lord of Ishtvan. And all of this, of course, would come with that just shouted like, Hail Horus, hail Horus, hail Horus. <laughs> my, my voice is getting horsed. Hor- Horus-ed? Hor- Horus-y. Yeah, Horacity hey, in your throat. Hey, what? Hey, Mark. After you read that, I have one question for you. Yes. Is Horace still War Master? <laughs> That's a forty k quote. <laughs> <laughs> quote for you, youngins. As crushing as the battle had been against the loyalist, it was not total, and many managed to escape once it was clear the battle had been lost either in gunships or into the crags and shifting sandstorms of the surrounding Urgul plains. The battle lust of the traitors, their eagerness to collect the spoils of war, and even their outright contempt for one another aiding those loyalists who managed to slip away. And yes, we're less than a year into the heresy, this battle often being the one that, that imperial scholars still consider the end of the Great Crusade. So this is the moment. That the Great Crusade is over and the heresy has started, according to a lot of Imperial scholars. And the traitor forces are already in fighting. And not like, I want to be the best one. I want to be the first. Like, they're literally fucking killing each other. Yep. They, the, the world eaters don't like the word bearers enough that they'll just slaughter them if they get too close and vice versa. Above in orbit, the battle had not been as one-sided as the traitors had hoped. Battle standards and war footings of an active war zone had ensured that the ships were at high alert and void shielded. The battle in the void lasted for many hours longer than the carnage on the ground, the loyalists continuing to fight on. Some stubbornly refused to leave their legions on the ground behind. It was then that Horus's fleet reappeared, and at last the loyalist fleet was too damaged and too outnumbered to face this fight and do anything other than be annihilated themselves. They fled. Those ships too damaged to make the warp translation fighting on in a bitter last stand to buy their comrades the precious moments they needed to escape. So remember, in orbit is only the three uh, fleets, or the loyalists are only three, and the traitors are only four at this point. And then all of a sudden, the other five show up. The Sons of Horus, the World Eaters the uh, Death Guard, the Emperor's Children, and the other half of the um, Word Bearers show back up. And at that point, the Loyalists are like, we are three legions, we can't handle it. It's only the Raven Guard, the Salamanders, and the Iron Hands in orbit. And they're like, we're fucked. They have to get out. Because you're not going to have three <laughs> battle barges essentially take on nine battle barges. It's not going to happen. Time, time to go. Ta- time to dip. With that, the battle was well and truly over. The era known as the Horus Heresy had undeniably begun, and the dark gods of chaos would drink in the misery, terror, and bloodshed for seven years of the conflict that was to follow. The survival... So, oh, go ahead. <clears throat> no, no, it's fine. You kind of already answered it. I was going to ask about the infighting a little more. Like, was the infighting happening as they were, like, cheering already, or is this infighting, like, after they kind of go their, so their separate as, ways? As Horus's speech ends... Um, we're going to take a little bit of a side jaunt to to follow what the Raven Guard had been doing during all of this, and then we'll get back to the Urgul Depression at a certain point. But to kind of give you a tidbit, 
or, or to answer you a, li- a little bit, because I'll answer you in full here in a, a minute or two. The traders after Horace's little speech basically start to go about cleaning up the battlefield of not just their dead, but of everybody. So at this point, you know, like I really want Sergeant Gillamacuddy buttfucks Balter from the Salamanders. Uh-huh. Good old Gillamacuddy. Uh, I'm gonna go get it. Happens, but if a word world eater and a word bearer and a night lord all want that rifle, they're gonna fight to the death to see who gets it. Like oh, okay. they don't care. Like, like there's not there's no love lost between them. The- the unity of the emperor is now gone. Yeah. They have no unity under Horus. It'll it will take demon it will take Abaddon to unify them again. And that won't happen for a couple thousand years. And like to be clear, Horus never really had unity. Abaddon was able to unify chaos again. And it happened years after this. Um and Abaddon was only able to do it because he spent a couple of thousand years tooling around the universe, gathering a bunch of super powerful shit. So Horus wasn't really in a position to control these guys. He was in a position to point them in the same direction and hope. He thought he was in control. And when he was on the field, he was still the war master and everybody was in awe of him, obviously. Like if he was on the field, they would follow him. But as soon as Horus is gone, as soon as Horus is like back into his fortress or starting the next part of his plan, none of them are sticking together that well. So the survival of the Raven Guard. With night truly fallen, the butchery across the drop site still continued. Those Raven Guard who had managed to escape into the maze of crags that made up the Urgal Hills fought a retreating battle. Most had long since run out of bolter ammo and now fought on with fists and combat blades, desperately trying to leave none of their warriors behind. Those too wounded to walk were carried, while those who would pause while others would pause to rescue or avenge those who fell to the forces of the pursuing traitors. Those left on the field were systematically butchered, and only scant fragmentary and contradictory accounts of this night have ever escaped what is known as the night of butchery. The traitors stalked the killing fields, delivering final death to those wounded they found, or taking them for future torture rituals. Those loyal to Horus were added to the funeral pyres as they were found. The world eaters performed one of the basest acts of savagery, taking the heads of the fallen and flensing the skin from bone, adding them to ever-growing mountains of skulls. It is said that Logar's word-bearers moved among the dying, choosing those who would be needed for rituals to come. While tens of thousands of dead loyalists had their progenoid glands torn savagely from their bodies, this is the main organ that carries Space Marine Gene Seed and is used in the creation of new Astartes warriors. So at this point, the traders have Raven Guard, Salamander, and Iron Hands Gene Seed to use as they see fit. Getting back to where Korax was, earlier we mentioned that he had managed to get aboard a Thunderhawk gunship, which had burned a hard retreat from the field only to be brought down by focus fire. The gunship had been under the command of Raven Guard Strike Captain Alvarax Mann who had managed to wrest the controls from the dead grip of its pilot and turn the disastrous crash into a hard-controlled landing somewhere in the Urgal Hills. The crew was completely dead, man was grievously wounded, and only Korax and a handful of other passengers had survived. But the withdrawing Raven Guard were once again reunited with their Primarch, 
During all of this, even as the Raven Guard slipped through the crags and hills surrounding the depression, the ships destroyed in the battle high above the planet began to enter the atmosphere, fragments and wreckage from the Loyalist spacecraft raining to the ground with the force of an orbital bombardment. This wreckage would continue to descend for weeks after the battle, and it almost always slammed indiscriminately among both traitors and Loyalists. But it did help the retreating Loyalists as it cast the planet into a blanket of bad Vox interference and incredible poor orbital visibility. So all of those like electronic countermeasures and like spycraft, all of that's gone at this point. There's just too much shit in the air. This allowed the Raven Guard to slip from the craggy tangle of the Urgul Hills into the even more maze-like region known as the Ilium Rift. By dusk on the second day, the survivors in the Rift knew almost nothing of the fate of the Iron Hands and the Salamanders, and Corvus Corax could be seen pacing the edge of the Urgal Hills, his gaze toward the Depression. Several times he would lead his chosen warriors back into the hills to save and bring in more Raven Guard and other Loyalist survivors. Throughout the second night, more scattered bands of Raven Guard staggered into Korax's refuge in the Ilium Rift, many wounded beyond the ability to continue to fight, their minds and bodies simply broken. Nothing the noble warriors of humanity, the Astartes, had suffered during the Great Crusade could compare to this new horror the Legion, of the Legion's split, and it threatened to break their already bowed spirits. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. Yeah. Yeah, this is like the worst. The worst hell. It's a trip to me that, well, I mean, the, the keepers of the night and stealth are the ones able to be able to sneak away the best. Well, especially as the sky turns dark. And shit starts raining down and, you know, you can't use your Auspex or your Vox anymore to track things. That's when your infiltration and sneaky experts are going to be their best. Speaking of which, Raven Guard recon teams had kept to their duties, hiding, watching, and reporting back to Korax on the movements of the traitor forces in the Urgul Depression. Mass landers had come, from the tit- had come for the Titan Legions, while other ships had come to collect the troops of the traitors, both Astartes and Human. The majority of Horus's forces were departing, heading towards whatever new battles the War Masters had in mind. This excluded the World Eaters, whose death squads continued to roam the hills and wasteland beyond, running down any Loyalists they could find. They continued to claim the flensed skulls of those they found, adding them to their ever-growing mountains and pyramids. It seemed Angron would not leave until the slaughter was well and truly done. And this stark new reality sank into the Raven Guard as they fell back upon their long-drilled battle doctrine, Korax committing his forces far and wide in hit-and-run diversionary tactics which drew the World Eaters away from the Ilium Rift and deeper into the Urgul Plains and the mountains to the other side of the Depression. These units stayed out for as long as needed, often returning with Loyalist survivors they had found, and even fresher wounds. They also reported on the strange hunting sport the World Eaters seemed to partake in. This was no longer war or even battle. Angron's forces would wound a target just to slowly torture them to death. They would like cut your Achilles tendon and then follow you, cutting you little by little by little until you died. This was not a turn me and fight. This was a like hunting for sport. Some loyalists suffered psychotic breaks, turning on their brothers in unrelenting savagery, odd behavior that defied all the loyalists understood. It wasn't long until some of the former Librarius troops of the Raven Guard came to Korax with their suspicions. 
Although they had shielded their minds and cut themselves off from their psychic potential since the edicts of Nikea, they could feel a malignant pressure growing. At first, it was assumed that this was just the ripple in the warp caused by so much death. But soon these waves of pressure seemed to only increase, and it became apparent that the world eaters had fallen much farther than any had suspected. The ever-growing pyramids of skulls arranged on the Urgal Depression and into the hills were, were more than just some obscene echoes of fanes often encountered by the Astartes on barbaric worlds during the opening years of the Crusade. Basically, as they saw these things, they're just like, this is gruesome trophy-taking, like the barbarians we used to defeat do. After a while, though, it was obvious that these rites were affecting the Raven Guard and others who lingered too long in the shadow of these great ghastly pyramids. Raven Guard recon teams even witnessed their allies fall to the malign influence of these monuments and join in the savagery. This was much darker than just the bestial barbarism that was part of the core of each world eater. This spoke to much darker things, and the events from the Age of Strife only barely, barely whispered about came back to the minds of men. Few of the loyalist Astartes that witnessed this knew its true nature, as it would still be a few years before demons and their effects on the material realm were common knowledge to Astartes warriors. But it was possible Korax knew some of what was happening, as he made sure to commit forces to using bombs to bring down some of the skull monuments nearest their refuge in the Ilium Rift, just to lessen the psychic sickness and pressure that they exuded. So this is the beginning of, you were asking like, what is the trophy taking and what's happening and what are the dark rituals? A lot of this. It's this sort of stuff. It's a lot of that. A lot of, they lot were, of skulls for the skull throne kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. They were building these monuments and they were just essentially like spreading corn rage, which doesn't make good salsa. <laughs> Wait, maybe it does make little, good salsa. Little mm. corn nuggets of rage. I, I guess it depends on what end of the body you take it in at. I was thinking more chunky salsa, which is what happens when you eviscerate a body, but I see where you're going with the corn reference. <laughs> we're, we're using corn in two different ways. The question is, do you taste it when it goes the other way? Depends on how much butter and garlic's on it. Uh, Chuck, I now know what your thesis is in. <laughs> Korax had managed to save what was left of his legion and reforge it into something that could survive not only the horror it had been through, but the wastelands they now found themselves trapped in. Raven Guard's strike forces isolated and then ambushed World Eater death squads, using combat knives and improvised weapons to take down their foes before salvaging what they could from their bodies. In this way, they were able to slowly rearm and with these new resources push even closer to the former battleground of the Urgal Depression. What they found when they did, though, was horrifying. Hundreds of black iron spikes had been hammered into the ground. The bodies or parts of bodies of loyalist Astartes warriors were impaled upon them. Worse yet, some of these still lived, their metahuman physiology allowing them to survive horrid tortures and even worse wounds. It was then that Korax realized another level of the depth of this treachery. This is what Horus would visit upon all the forces that refused to join him on every world he took on his new crusade. The Raven Guard saw the coming horror of worlds that would drown in blood for refusing to kneel before the War Master. During these actions, the Raven Guard found a vast underground Xenos complex, a hidden fortress not too far from the Urgal Depression. The timing couldn't have been more fortuitous, for as they began to relocate to this much more secure location, Gargantuan vessels of the Dark Mechanicum began to land in and among the ancient volcanoes 
that surrounded the depression itself. Thousands upon thousands of servitors and tech thralls moved out onto the battlefield under the command and lash of the tech priests, and a truly massive salvage effort began, one which would give Horus an early advantage in the war. The depression was littered with equipment of incredible military worth, and even that which was too damaged to be repaired was priceless for the amount of salvage it allowed. Hundreds of plasma cutters began their grim work, reclaiming the remains of hundreds of thousands of space marines and their equipment. This operation would continue for weeks, and even then, months after the drop site massacre, salvage units would find still-living bodies, those space marines that had succumbed to their stasis-like healing comas. Some of the word-bearers and emperor's children who had stayed behind would take extra delight in the chance to torture these warriors to death again. Often these actions served some sort of yet misunderstood or barely glimpsed ritual. The Raven Guard did what they could to disrupt the salvage and save those Astartes that they found. Many tech priests would fall to a well-placed sniper round, and entire work crews would vanish when they flipped over a body to expose an improvised explosive. But ultimately, their efforts were just a drop in the bucket. And this is them just basically grabbing all the, the loot. Yeah. They're yeah. looting the bodies. They're looting the broken the tanks. Here. Yeah. Everything that's left over. And of course, because, you know, space Marines get hurt enough that they essentially go into like a healing trance. They, yeah. get, they go into a coma and they heal. Um, they would find just living dudes. And instead of killing them, they would give them to the word bearers and the emperor's children. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure they found just as many traitors too that just like, Oh, welcome yeah. back boys. Well, welcome back here. Go, go over here to these guys. Yeah. And at the same time, the Raven guard were doing what the Raven guard do as Chuck mentioned earlier, they're being infiltrators. They're being spies they're being recon units. So as they're coming across dudes like this, they're like, Hey, take all your shit, take all the shit you can carry and come with us now. Like we need to get you out of here. And the Raven Guard were. The Raven Guard were moving into the Depression and fucking with shit the entire time. Like, it's just, the, it's just who they are. As soon as they got over the initial battle shock of we're fucked, they went right back to what they had always been, infiltrators. How can we infiltrate the battlefield as best as possible? At the very least, to take whatever news we see to the Emperor when we escape. During all of this time, it became obvious to the traitors that there was some non-insignificant force of loyalists who had survived, Angron and his world eaters having taken it upon themselves to hunt them down. The Raven Guard, however, observed how different these traitor forces left behind acted. While the world eaters spread across like marauders, the other isolated traitors left behind acted very differently. It was as if they had been the ones left behind as some sort of punishment detail, or for some other reason that was known only to Horus. These forces were often highly fracturous and poorly disciplined. The Sons of Horus, as an example, had hunting groups that would use cyber mastiffs to hunt down loyalists, while the word bearers would keep to themselves and their dark rituals. The unity of the legions from the Great Crusade had been shattered. The Iron Warriors contingent was the smallest, but by far the most well-armed, and often roamed the wastes in armored vehicle columns. The largest three of these, which provided Korax with an opportunity he had been watching for. Just about a month into the long battle for survival, the Raven Guard struck the smaller of these convoys in an ambush, killing hundreds of traitor Astartes and leaving their vehicles as nothing but guttering hulks. While not a victory that could turn the tide or even repay the toll that had been occurred during the massacre, 
It had a significant impact on the morale of Korax's warriors. However, it was as Korax and some of his elite infiltrators, the more Dathan, watched these burning hulks that they had left behind in the ambush that they first glimpsed the newest heretical depravity the traitors would unleash. As the dark mechanicum war machines known as the Blind Hunters stalked into the wasteland, these mechanical automaton were possessed by a dark intelligence and would scour the surface of Istavan 5 in an attempt to eliminate all surviving loyalists. These are essentially like think of the good side battle automaton, like the Castellans and stuff that the Mechanicus use, but they're the 30k version and then they're possessed by demons. <laughs> Just a few days after this attack, another opportunity presented itself as a second column of the Iron Warriors' vehicles moved into the Ilium Rift itself. Korax quickly drew up a plan of overwhelming attack. However, this time it would be different, as mixed among the ranks were a dozen Contemptor Dreadnoughts. It was onto one of these that Korax fell, jumping into the column's mist with his jump jets. He must have known the warrior encased in this metal sarcophagus as he spoke the veteran's name and the two immediately squared off the fight in single combat. Korax made short work of it, tearing the armored brain case and spinal cord from the warrior in a matter of moments. And this was the signal that his warriors above, hidden in near-perfect black, of the ravine had waited for. The rest of the raven guard dropped on their target, with Korax leaping to tear into the next dreadnought. As the smoke cleared, another few hundred iron warriors lay dead, along with dozens of their dreadnoughts. Most of those had been killed by Korax's hand himself. While many Raven Guard had lost their life, the scene they left behind was a clear message to the traitors. This was far from the last time the Raven Guard would claim their vengeance. And that's where we'll wrap up for episode 5 of the Horus Heresy. The coming confrontation between Corvus Korax and Angron is brewing like black clouds on the horizon. I was going to say, so what do you think, Marky? It's pretty gnarly, dude. It's, it's pretty cool. I like it. I wish the books weren't so fucking boring. Yeah. Depends on wordy. Wordy. It it depends on the the author. The number of times in this research I came across the the exact wording and the heretical actions of the traitors had never known such depravity was ridiculous. I was like, (laughs) that could literally be the the episode title. I could have just titled it the depravity of the heretics it knows no bounds because like every single article every single chunk i cross-referenced with, with the exception of rereading the actual novels all of the like hard lore that i have that i referenced for the episode was just like and the traitors were ever more treacherous their treachery <laughs> was super treacherous <laughs> You don't understand how treachery treacherous their treachery was and i was like jesus christ guys <laughs> like come on I get it. They're traitors. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, that's really common, though. Like, I, one of my favorite things, I, I kind of encountered this when we were doing the Eldari research, was like, and the Eldari aspect warriors of the Shrouded Sentinel know the perfect time to strike. And the striking scorpions know <laughs> the perfect time to strike. And the guardians know. <laughs> The perfect time to strike. And I'm like, they can't all know the perfect time, okay? The One of them has to be better. The, the Farseer. time to guard. Uh, the the Farseer no, can see the perfect time to strike. 515. <laughs> 515. Right after everybody's gotten their drinks. <laughs> <laughs>
It's about tea time, isn't it? Yeah, it's right, right after tea happy time. hour starts. <laughs> it's just like you know, there's there's uh, there's better best. No, there's good better best. How does that break down? There's like three levels, and like I swear, the Warhammer world is like, yeah, the Imperial Guard is good, but the Commissars are better, but the Tempestus are the best, but the Casserkins <laughs> are the best, but the Veterans are the best. But the catachans are the best. And you're like, wait a minute. If everything is the best, there is no scale anymore. Why did you bother to define it? And that's like the same thing. The treachery was the treacheriest. But their treachery was the treacheriest. I'm like, okay, they're all deplorable assholes. Got it. We're good. We're good to go. <laughs> they're all bad. But yeah, Chuck, how do you uh how do you like the Raven Guard here? Single handedly <laughs> taking out the Iron Warriors. Oh no! Like I dismantling I the fuck out of them. Oh, I love I I love it because I've re- I read this novel and it's fucking amazing. At some point, Korax is running around with just a heavy. He's running around with a heavy bolter like a pistol. Yeah, so he's got he's got a heavy bolter in his unlightning clawed hand. Yeah, and then his <sighs> other arm. After a couple of days, he regains use of his other arm. So he's still yeah. busting around, ripping shit apart with his lightning claw. But, but Conrad has his other one. I mean, but I mean, just just that image in my head, you know, when I'm reading the book is like this giant motherfucker has a heavy bolter and he's running around with it like a pistol. Yeah. Then, Point blank. This <laughs> fuck. This amount of research. There's always something when we're researching a topic or a faction or or whatever that I get like super excited about, and I really want to start a new army. This makes me want to do a Raven Guard kill team, like really badly. I don't want to do Korax, and I don't want to deal with any of their like named characters because I think that kill team. I think like well, I think their sculpts don't do them justice. The whole like emo bend of the sculpts does not do the Raven Guard justice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. It's really weird. I don't know why they decided to do the. This is the Black Parade with the Raven Guard sculpts. My Chemical Romance Army. <laughs> that was it. The My yeah. Chemical Ravens. <laughs> I just, I just, and, and I agree with you, Ryan. I think, I think the Raven Guard for one, the loyalists, they're, they're like really, well, especially in the 30K novels, it's like, oh, yeah. fuck. They're, they're, like you were talking earlier, they're depressed, but for a fucking reason, they were there. All right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into some <laughs> of the psychology shit that they get, that they're, happens to them in the beginning of our next episode. Is it? We're gonna. Cor- go ahead, Cor- 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 Corax is a badass because don't forget, eventually, like in the cover art, like you know, if you can see it right now, he's got his two claws. Later on, you know what he replaces his claw with? A whip. Yeah, yeah. No, it 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 gets it gets crazy. Yeah. But next episode, we'll spend a little bit of time talking. So there's a lead up. You know, we don't as as it's shown because the Raven guard are doing what they're doing. And obviously there's salamanders that are being res. There's salamanders and their iron hands that are being rescued as well. But the majority of the troops at this point are Raven guard, but because of the way that they're fighting and because of what they're dealing with and because of where they're hiding and all this shit, like they're just, they're not, these guys aren't resting and they're not eating, you know, they're getting like maybe an hour of sleep a night and they're eating rations when they take rations from one of the hunter teams that they take down. So like, you know, think of only eating once a week, barely sleeping and constantly fighting. And most of the time you're fighting, you're using your combat knife and like maybe 
a, a tank tread that you've beaten into a sword as your weapons. Like these guys are not having an easy go at it, and it starts to wear on them. Um, the Raven Guard are a haunted legion for a reason, and it and it's this. This is the shit that they went through. This is like you know, they don't have that gene thing that awakened because Sanguinius died, and they're all mad. They went through it, so they're all fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Oh no the the Edgelord uh, uh, army has uh, trauma. Yeah, yeah, the Edgelord <laughs> army has trauma. The good Edlord army has trauma. The bad Edlord army also has trauma. It's just also, different. Also trauma. has trauma. <laughs> if you want to get into contact with us about any of our episodes or the show itself, you can reach out to us through email at underthehiveofmadness at gmail dot com. Feel free to join our community on Discord. Not only can you talk about us, they not can only can talk, you talk about to us, us behind no. our back. <laughs> no, not really. We see the logs. Not only can you talk to us about lore, hobby, tactics, and Warhammer 40k, but you can also get involved with other topics like Age of Sigmar, magic, role-playing, video games, and much more. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website that Ryan already spoke about. Uh, check out our battle reports and other video content from our friends from Improbable Wargaming on YouTube. Just search Improbable Wargaming on all platforms and they should come up. Spelling and links should be in the show notes. You can help our podcast grow by liking and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast fix. We are on Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, and many more. Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. All Patreon members get access to video podcasts with minimal editing. So you can see our beautiful faces and hear all of my amazing bloopers and blunders because I flub my words a lot. You also get access to our quarterly painting contest, plus we have perks at higher levels, such as monthly giveaways, so go on over and check that out. Bexy's Flack and Jack, your number one source for all things that gyrate and jiggle in the underhive. Check out their rat burger and fried crest fish buffet, only two credits after third shift all month long. And remember to wash it all down with four cred chilled buckets of two nobblers in a coat. We are the rabble-rousing rebels your parents always warned you about. The last beacon of truth on the pirate Vox Wave. 665.66UHMRChemRat Radio. Reminding all of you chemrats, hive mice, and sump ghoulies to keep those dials fixed right here. Same ratty frequency for a dose of the same ratty-ass attitude. In the depths of In's mouth. Clutch your loomy lanterns close and fortify your habdors with the Emperor's blessing. For nightly the formed Emperor's prowl, the motives of such monstrous vermin, born of the Stygian abyssal ice where elder things slumber, will always remain at the edge of madness. That's some creepy shit, motherfucker. Const- constantly edging. Constantly edging. <laughs> By the way, I, I realized without really meaning to, all of the shit we're talking about is so dark that it fits in with our month of spooky. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Our month of spooky. Read a fucking book. Or wait, good night, motherfucker. What do we say? Oh, just motherfucker. Oh, bitch, dude.